0: In his book, Praying with Paul, A Call for Spiritual Reformation, D.A. Carson begins the book by asking, what is the most urgent need in the Western church today? Maybe you can ask yourself that question. What is the most urgent need in the Western church today? And he identifies a variety of possible options. For example, you might think of the rising biblical illiteracy and that would call for the need for solid, expositional preaching. Or you might think of our age filled with greed and consumerism, calling for integrity and generosity. Or at a time when sexual, sexual promiscuity is, 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 is going rampant, um, we need purity that doesn't fall into prudishness. Or again, with so people having any sort of substantive uh, understanding of the gospel, you might say that we need articulate evangelists. Shouldn't these pressing needs take a certain priority? Or as part of our Christian witness, as Jesus says, that they will know us by our love for one another, you could argue that the most uh, essential need is for us to demonstrate love for one another, particularly as as, uh, economic needs arise, maybe within our midst. We urgently need to see the church at the forefront of racial reconciliation, he suggests. Or what about premarital sex becoming more common uh, these days? Or when our society uh, it starts to implement more regularity to laws regarding uh, deviant sexualities, we need a clear-headed view of marriage, potentially. Maybe that's the most urgent need. All of these perceived needs clamor for our attention or perhaps we should put the focus on church planting and mission the last century and a half we've witnessed worldwide expansion of the gospel but there are still thousands of unreached people or even in places that had previously been evangelized like the United States and Europe they once again need evangelism uh, another time or even where the gospel has gone. A lot of times uh, people need to be told not only does the gospel reconcile us to God, but it's also meant to transform us. We have a lot of churches that are not actually living out uh, the transformation of the gospel. Surely these needs in these areas demand a certain precedent over other urgent calls. So Dr. Carson, after listing out all these different options though, things that certainly call for our attention, and could be contenders for the most pressing need in the Western church today, nonetheless argues this, that the most urgent need of the church in the Western world today is the need to pray. And I wonder if that would come to the top of our list. Clearly, all of these things are important, he says. Quote, but there is a sense in which these urgent needs are symptomatic of a far more serious lack namely that of prayer quote can we we can probably or we can profitably sorry can we profitably meet the other challenges that confront the western church if prayer is ignored as much as it has been we have learned to organize build institution uh, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop evangelistic church-planting strategies, and administer discipleship programs. But is it not obvious that we have forgotten how to pray? Is it not true that by and large we are better at organizing than agonizing, he says, better at administering than interceding, better at fellowship than fasting, better at entertainment than worship, better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration, Better, God help us at preaching more than praying. So as we begin this morning, we begin a new series on prayer for six weeks, going with our rallying cry. Every once in a while, we, uh, the elders at Crossway, will put together a rallying cry and say this is something we feel as pastors that we need to be focusing on as a church for a time to grow in. And as we looked through our purpose and pursuits, our philosophy of ministry, we identified prayer as, as, in, as a particular need for our church, In this moment and if what dr carson argues is true it is the greatest need of the western church today all other needs are sort of just symptomatic of that need and so over the next six weeks normally we be we would be doing sort of an expositional series through a book but occasionally we will step back out of that normal practice and do some topical messages for the next six weeks we'll be doing some topical messages we'll start with the necessity of prayer today but in the weeks after that, we'll look at the basis of prayer, the grounds on which we even have the right to pray. We'll look at the purpose of prayer. We'll look at the power of prayer. We'll look at hindrances um, that cause us to neglect prayer. And then finally, we'll look at the manner or the, 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 the way that we actually go about praying. But the, the claim that I would like to make today in our first message regarding the necessity of prayer is this, that we need prayer Because we are utterly dependent on God. We need prayer. It is necessary for us. Because we are utterly dependent on God. Even as we think about our mission as a church, to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel. When we get into our purpose and pursuits, that everyone here as a member has gone through our membership class, we talk about our purpose and pursuits particularly our pursuits I want to focus on. These are things that we say, what does it look like for our church to demonstrate health? What does a healthy church look like? If you were to find a healthy church, what things would characterize it? And what things promote and cultivate that health? Those are our pursuits as we pursue the mission. We, we give a variety of different things that we think scripture would identify, um, and we relay all of these back to our mission of making disciples. So for example... We speak of scripture as the foundation for discipleship. We think about the ministry of the word, speaking God's word to one another as the means of discipleship. That's how we make disciples. Or again, we speak of community as the context for discipleship. That community is the natural habitat, we might say, of disciple-making in the church. Well, how does prayer fit in as one of those pursuits? This is how we describe it. We say prayer is the lifeblood of our discipleship it's the lifeblood of our discipleship quote the church is completely dependent on god for its existence and the success of its mission because of this we must be devoted to prayer and we must constantly strive to pursue fostering a church culture where prayer is the air that we breathe My mind goes to Psalm 127 where it says this, that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. We can strive to build the house, so to say, metaphorically speaking, but unless God is at work enabling our work, all of our labors are in vain. We are completely dependent on God to fulfill our mission as a church. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman who guards the city... He watches up and stays stays up at night in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. The mission of the church is, is a supernatural mission. We cannot bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. We cannot, in our own strength, even sanctify ourselves by our own power. We need God to be at work, and so if we are to pursue the mission that God has given us, we need his help, and we need to pray. Think of that illustration of lifeblood. We speak of prayer as the lifeblood of discipleship. Um, blood, if, if you're not familiar, as I'm, I'm not super familiar with biology and those sort of things, but the basics of blood, at least that I understand, is that blood have these cells, you know, white blood cells come and they fight infection, or red blood cells, I believe, they carry oxygen to different parts of the body, and blood carries vital nutrients throughout the entire body, And it also carries away waste, fights infections, and things like that. Blood is essential for the health of your body, such that if you lose blood, you can bleed out and die, right? To give us constant energy, constant life. Even the Old Testament speaks about the life being in the blood. Why? Because it brings oxygen. It brings nutrients throughout the entire body. And so that's how we view prayer. We think that's a good uh, illustration of the Bible's portrait of of the role of prayer in the life of a church, That prayer is, it's like blood in that sense. It's the lifeblood. It's not merely one ministry among many in in the life of a church. But it's that ministry that gives life and vitality to all the others. And so we must be committed to pursuing a church culture, as we say, where prayer is the air that we breathe. It's instinctual. It's reflexive. And so we need to pray because we are utterly dependent on God. Now, when, we say, when I say that prayer is necessary, the Oxford Dictionary would define the, the word necessary as the fact of being required or something that's indispensable. So something that's required or indispensable. Now, is that an overstatement then? Are we being fair when we say that prayer is necessary? It's absolutely indispensable. It's absolutely required. Even as we think about the passage that Holly just got done reading for us, Ezekiel 37, we saw in Ezekiel 36, uh, God is speaking to the house of Israel and talking about how they have been brought into exile on account of their sin, but he is going to restore them. That's what 36 is talking about. When we get to 37, we get a vision of that restoration depicted as the people of Israel, a bunch of dry bones that God will eventually speak life into and resurrect from the dead. Okay? That Israel's experience under the law as a disobedient people eventually kicked out from the promised land just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Okay? They're recapitulating the story of humanity. It's our story as well. We find our own sinful condition reflected in Adam as well as reflected in Israel. And how Ezekiel, that chapter, Ezekiel 37, depicts our spiritual condition, it depicts us as a valley of dry bones. It's as, as 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 almost as if, like, it says when they're raised, they're like an army. So it's almost like an army was just slaughtered, and, and, the, and the soldiers are just left rotting. And they've been dead for so long that now their bones are dry. They're as, they're, they're as dead as dead can be. They are dry, decomposed bones. And so God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, the seemingly obvious answer would be No. But Ezekiel is smart enough to know that, not all, that, 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 that nothing is impossible with God. And he says, well, Lord, you know, I'm going to leave that one for you to decide. And God, in his miraculous power, actually resurrects those bones through the spirit, through the wind. The same word in Hebrew for the spirit. In other words, spiritual life is utterly dependent on God's word working through The Spirit, or the Spirit working through the Word, we might say. We are utterly dependent on God and His Word and His Spirit. And so we might say we need to be praying if God is going to act in that sort of way. And we also need to remember, based on a passage like this, that nothing is impossible with God. Okay, When we're talking about a a being who is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, has infinite power, there are no degrees of difficulty. For us, with limited power, some things are more difficult and some things are less difficult. With God, there is no degrees of some things being more difficult and less difficult because he has all power. He simply wills things into existence. And so when we look at the, at the, the, the difficulties before us as, a, as a, the mission of our church in terms of making disciples among ourselves or making disciples of the nations and the people around us, we can sometimes feel intimidated like god people are not going to believe the gospel. This person, this friend I know, this coworker, they feel so far away from the gospel. And sometimes we think that some people are closer to the gospel and maybe they're more likely to believe, but we're viewing it from a human mindset at that point. Everybody who's outside of the gospel is is dead in their sins. And it's going to take a miracle for every single person as much as the person who seems near as the person who seems far. There's no one off the possibility of God regenerating that person and bringing them to faith in Christ. There is nothing impossible about the mission that God has given us when it is actually dependent on him to do it and he is merely using us as his agents. There are no degrees of difficulty in God. Or we think of Acts 4. I think of Acts 4 where the believers, uh, John and Peter, if you remember, we preached through Acts a while ago, Uh, John and Peter were just arrested after they They healed a man who was outside the temple, and the Jewish leaders arrest them, and they threaten them and say, don't preach the name of Jesus anymore. And so John and Peter, though, they're released, and they go back to their their fellow Christians. In chapter four, verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, essentially be quiet, stop preaching in the name of Jesus anymore. And so what do they do? What do the believers instinctively do? in face of this difficulty they pray and so we see in verse 29 their prayer and now Lord Christ look upon the threats and what grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your arm you stretch out that strong hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God, grant us boldness in the face of these threats to continue speaking with boldness. And God answers their prayer. He he gives them the ability to speak with boldness, and we see that through the rest of the book. Even in the midst of trials and persecution, the church goes forward speaking the word of God with boldness and it's amazing you think about it you might say well wow the the disciples in the early church you know they were really fervent people there was something really special about them but when you go back to chapter one they're cowering they're afraid you go back to the to the book of the end of luke they're simply waiting for god to them to empower them by the spirit and the spirit comes and takes this group that was previously cowering at the face of jesus death and transforms them into an empowered people who proclaim the gospel at all costs to themselves. I recently finished um, reading, we've been on a Roald Dahl kick um, at home, reading a bunch of Roald Dahl books. If you're not familiar with him, he's the guy who wrote uh, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, BFG. Anyways, we just also finished um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, where's Alicia? Big fan of that book. Um... We also just finished Matilda, okay? So he wrote Matilda as well. Now, if you remember Matilda, they made a movie about it you may have seen. There's a teacher, uh, Matilda's kindergarten teacher, I believe, named Miss Honey. Now, Miss Honey lives in just absolute destitute poverty, Um, at least in the book she does. I don't remember the movie. But she lives in utter poverty, and Matilda goes over there and is wondering why she lives in such poverty. Well, the Trunchbull, the the, uh, headmistress of the school, spoiler alert, also happens to be her aunt, okay, and has deprived her of her inheritance. Her parents, Miss Honey's parents died at a young age, and the Trunchbull, de- her aunt, deprived her of her inheritance. And so Miss Honey is living just basically like in this shed. She doesn't have any basic appliances. But in the bank, she is actually just loaded with money that she can't access. In other words, She is rich, she's filthy rich, but she's living as someone who's utterly poor. She's living poor while being absolutely filthy rich. And I think that's essentially what we do as Christians when we fail to pray. That we are living poor, we're depriving ourselves of this great access we have to a Father who loves us and desires to give us the kingdom, as Luke says, and yet we don't pray and we don't ask for it. We live poor while being rich in God. And so why is it difficult for us to pray? Why do we find a hindrance to seeing the necessity of prayer? Well, on the one hand, I think some of us may have sort of a theological question. Sort of the the quandary of, you know, if God is sovereign, why pray? Doesn't it seem weird to say that prayer is necessary if God in his sovereignty is just going to bring everything about as he's ordained it beforehand? Well, I actually think a better response to the question uh, of God's sovereignty is not not if God is sovereign, why pray? But if God is sovereign, therefore pray. So pray. In other words, if God is not sovereign, what is prayer going to do? He can't control it. His sovereignty, in other words, rather than being a deterrent to pray, is actually the grounds for praying. In the mystery of God's providence, God uses prayer. We, we pray to God, not despite his sovereignty, but per- precisely because he is sovereign. Precisely because he has control over the situation and can act. And God uses prayer within his decrees to actually bring about those purposes. I think of Revelation 8, the beginning of the trumpet judgments, where if you remember in Revelation, uh, we get these bowls, we get these censers filled with incense that's a symbol of the prayers of God's people. And it it talks about how the prayers rise up to God like a sweet aroma that God delights in the prayers of his people. And then the angel takes the censer and he dumps out the fire. As a way of saying, this is how God's purposes are fulfilled. This is how God's judgments are coming into fruition. Is that God's, the prayer of God's people are actually the means that God uses to bring about his purposes. God uses prayer. But for many of us, I imagine that our struggle is less theological and more experiential. It's less about our confessed theology and more about our, what we might call our, our functional theology. Less about what we say we believe and more about what we sort of actually believe, believe when the rubber meets the road. And so why do we struggle with sensing the necessity of prayer? And I think one reason at least is that we don't sense our need. We, we are numb to our desperation. We, we, we're neglectful of our, of our actual dependence on God. And so I would say, first of all, as I said, that we need to pray because we're utterly dependent on God. The second claim I would want to make is that we would actually pray more, I think, if we sensed our need for it more. If we sensed our desperation and our dependence on God more. Or you might flip that. You might say that the more we sense our need for prayer, the more we would instinctively pray. And I think a lot of us know this from experience, right? On times where you're going through something really difficult... It, hopefully, this is how it is for me at least, I sort of feel uh, if other times I struggle to pray, which I do, I feel like this is an area that I'm weak in personally, but if I'm going through something difficult, I just find it natural to like instinctively pray. It just kind of comes out of me. It's like something I believe as we're made in the image of God, God has made us to commune with him. That's a natural thing that we all have. And for whatever reason, in our own desperation, we feel our creatureliness in a more accurate way and we instinctively go to God in prayer it's like a reflex that we have you think of like reflexes in babies okay like we have a young baby Abel is what like nine months old now I think something like that I could be off a little bit third kid you kind of lose track right okay but what do babies have they have the reflex to like get food they have a fall reflex all these things that kind of help them develop and help them survive Or even as adults, like if you get a little dust in your nose, you have a reflex to sneeze, right? These are things that are are built into our body that God has created to help us function properly. And I would say we need to develop a reflex to pray as well, where we sense that desperation, where there's a, a sense of desperation and there's an instinct to pray. So the question, though, is why don't we sense that need? Why don't we sense our utter dependence and our desperation to pray? And now as I was thinking about this for myself as I said this is some prayer is something that I feel like I have always struggled with. I know Dan has said that this is a, this is like a struggle that we both have. And so maybe our own reason for wanting to bring this as a rallying cry is because we sense that we want to improve in this area and lead better you guys as well. But as I think about my own struggle, as I think about the world that I live in, the people I rub shoulders with, these are three things that I think I'll offer, at least three things reflections on why we might struggle to sense our utter desperation and dependence for prayer. So the first is societal. Societal, we live in a very prosperous society and I think the fact that we have so much, even those within our society who are poor still generally have a lot more than other people in the rest of the world or at other times in history, I think that prosperity can kind of numb us to our sense of actually having great need We feel full. We feel like we have what we need, by and large. My mind goes to Deuteronomy 8, where God tells the Israelites take care lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you get into the land, this is him giving them the law a second time, Ronami. okay, getting to the land, giving the law a second time as they enter into the land, saying when you enter the land and it's flowing with milk and honey and you got all this great stuff, don't forget the Lord God, don't don't look at all the stuff you have and think to yourself, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Because why? Wealth and prosperity has a way of kind of making us feel self-reliant. And we don't sense our need. So the first is societal, our society is prosperous. The second is cultural. I think our culture um, puts a high emphasis on achievement and productivity. And with that can, can come a sense of independence, like we're self-made people. And so to ask for help, to kind of feel desperate, to feel dependent, That's very much looked down on in our society. We feel embarrassed by that. It's really our pride getting in the way that I'm not dependent on anyone. I can do this myself. And there obviously are some benefits to a culture like that, but there are some negatives. And the negatives is that we view any sense of dependence or maybe even community or in this case dependent on God in prayer where we kind of recoil to that. Maybe there's something even in you when you go to pray, praying kind of, inevitably, automatically sort of communicates to yourself, like, I'm in need. If I'm praying to God and I'm asking him and I'm, I'm worshiping him as the creator, it's, that's, a humbling, that's inherently a humbling act. And there's something that we in our pride just may not like about that. We want to be self-reliant. So the first is societal, then cultural, and the last is, I, I wanted to go with eel, so bear with me, ecclesial, which just means churchy, okay? So the last is churchy, societal, cultural, and ecclesial. And this is, I think, for whatever reason, in our tradition, our theological tradition, where we put a high emphasis on doctrine and and studying the scriptures and knowing the word rightly, which are all absolutely good things, there seems to be a tendency among Reformed people um, to have a prayerlessness. And I think that may be because we have such a theological confidence, we have such a confidence in knowing the scriptures and knowing how to do church and and having all the right answers that that translates into a sense where we then feel confident and we don't feel desperate because we feel we have all the answers. And it's really ironic then, the very theology that should actually tell us we're desperate and, and humble us before God, we use to propped ourselves up and to feel um, a lack of desperation on God. But when we look at the scriptures, we see our utter desperation. Even think going back to the very creation, right? Think of the creation account in Genesis 2. When God creates man, in Genesis 2, it says that he creates him out of the dust. God breathes life into us. Okay, We don't possess existence as in, as a, as a as a property inherent to us, God is the only being in the universe who is self existence, self existent, who, ac- who actually has the property of existence inherently. Every other thing in this entire universe is given existence by God. We are not dependent, independent by any stretch of the imagination. Our very existence was something that God gave us. God formed us out of dust. He, he breathed life into us. We don't possess our own life. We're not our own. We belong to God, body, and soul, as the catechism says. We think about Paul when he's at Athens. He, he speaks about how, how, how this God who, who made the world and everything in it, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by humans, as if he needed anything. He is self-sufficient. He's the God that created all other things. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. For in him we live and move and have our being. That God is the sustainer. He's the creator and he's the one who not only creates us but then sustains us. God alone is self-existent and self-reliant. Everything else that exists, exists simply by him willing it into existence and willing that it continues to exist. Our very existence right now is dependent on the fact that God continues to will our existence. And so here's the thing. If our very existence is dependent on God, how much more everything else we do with our existence, such as the mission of the church and our Christian life, let alone the things that we pray for, You see, prayer is is actually an enacting of our dependence on God. To pray is to to actually enter into the reality of who we are as creatures and who God is in his godness. It's to lean into the reality of our creatureliness and God's deity. To pray, you might say, is one of the greatest ways we actually act fully human, fully in our creatureliness and recognizing God in his godness. Or I think about Ephesians 6, if you turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is this famous passage where it talks about the, um, the whole armor of God. Paul talks about how we're in a battle. Okay, we're in a spiritual battle. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we're fighting against principalities and powers of darkness and authorities. We're in a spiritual battle, though. In other words, like... When you're in a battle, you don't. if you were a soldier, you wouldn't just go into, the sol, into a battle flippantly. There's a reason they have basic training, and they do the sort of things that prepare soldiers to enter into a battle. Because if you don't prepare, you just take someone off their couch playing video games every night and stick them into a battle overseas, what's going to happen? That's not going to go well, right? Battles are serious things. You don't just enter into them casually. And Paul is saying, we're in a battle. Did you know that? We're in a battle. We need to be vigilant. We need to be alert. We need to be prepared. Laziness, coasting, it's not going to fare well in the Christian life. And so that's the first thing we need to know. Like, we're in a battle. We don't go in without our weapons. We don't go in without any armor. So what does he say? Put on the armor. Get your weapons. You go in prepared. And he gives all these kind of metaphors. He talks about uh, the the belt of truth in verse 14 or the breastplate of, of righteousness. He talks about the shoes of, of, this, of this readiness to share the gospel of peace. Or verse 16, the shield of faith, seven, faith 17, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And then in 18, notice how it closes. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, I imagine some people would argue that this praying in the Spirit is then one of the final, it's, it's another one of the weapons or armor that we put on, right? So you have all these different things, you have truth, you have righteousness, you got the gospel, faith, so helmet of salvation, all this, and then you get to 18, you got prayer. Now prayer is like another piece of the armor. But notice, all the other pieces of armor are, clearly have some sort of illustration with them. The helmet of salvation, salvation being depicted as a helmet, etc. Prayer does not get an illustration. In other words, what I would argue is that when you get to 18, we're not dealing with one more piece of armor. You're actually dealing with the reality that enables all the armor. When you want to think about the battle, what do we need? Well, we need all those pieces of armor. But at the end of the day, when, when, Paul, when the rubber meets the road, how do you actually enact all those pieces of armor? You've got to pray. you got to pray like you're in a battle. My sister, if some of you remember, she uh... had um... thyroid cancer and what they had to do in order to... she's all better at this point but what she had to do is they had to actually remove her thyroid in a surgery and now that she doesn't have a thyroid um... she has to take a pill every single day to whatever a thyroid does. I think it has something to do with hormones and stuff like that. Again, I'm not good at biology, okay? um... but it's something with hormones that regulates your metabolism, maybe something like that. okay, but she has to take a thyroid pill every single day to kind of counteract what her thyroid would have done, okay? And if she doesn't take it, um, then I think she said that she becomes um, hypothyroid, something like that. Like, the regulation is gone, right? Okay? Now, if she missed a day though, I I asked her, I said, what happens if you miss taking the pill? She says, well, you know, it's gonna take a while before I really start to have some bad repercussions, okay? So if she missed, Not a good idea, not the end of the world though. But if we're in a battle, the stakes are up higher. So let's say for the sake of illustration, you, your doctor gave you a pill and said, you have to take this pill every single day at nine o'clock sharp in the morning. You have a 10 minute window on either side, but it has to be within that window. It's a very strict regimen. And if you miss, You're going to die. I guarantee you, you would not forget to take that pill. You'd be setting off alarms on your phone. You'd have multiple things going off. You'd have people to remind you, whatever you needed, right? You would prioritize taking that pill. We are in a battle as well. And prayer is to sense our dependency. I want you to think of it like taking that pill every single day. It's not some optional thing but if we are to actually fight the battle we're in, we desperately need prayer. You no, know, other there's the idea being, like, if something was kind of like, eh, we'll get to it, you're apt to forget it, right? But if you really sensed your need, like, taking that pill, if you really said, listen, if I don't pray, if I don't take that pill at that time every day, like, I'm done for. And so I think our lack of, I think our lack of prayer shows that we don't really sense our need for it. We don't feel our need for it. If we really felt our need for it, we wouldn't miss it, right? And so we need prayer because we are utterly dependent on God. And as we sense our need, as we sense our desperation and our dependence, as I said, I, I believe this, this, there's sort of this natural instinct. There's this natural reflex that can kick in. But the, the beauty of it is that reflexes or instincts can also be things that we develop, If you're if you've played music or maybe you've played sports, you're familiar with this idea of muscle memory. Okay? We're born with instincts, right? Like the coughing reflex or the gag reflex, things like that. But you can also develop, I don't know if they'd be called instincts, but whatever they are, you can develop this kind of muscle memory, right? Such that when Kyle's playing his guitar and he wants to switch to a different chord, his fingers, he doesn't have to think much of it. His fingers just automatically switch. Or, if you're, or if, you're play, if you're a basketball player or something like that, your, your hands automatically go up into the shooting position. You don't have to consciously think about it terribly much. Because why? It takes time, but eventually you can foster these sort of instincts and these sort of reflexes. And so we as a people, we need to be regularly reminded of our need as we seek to cultivate this, this prayer instinct and this prayer reflex. I think that's what we need. I think we need things in our life that are constantly reminding us of our need, constantly dwelling on it to foster this instinct in us more. And the beauty is is that the gospel itself is the greatest reminder of our need. As we practice the Lord's Supper every single week, we get a weekly reminder of this dependence that we have on God. Because in the gospel as depicted in the Lord's Supper, The bread and the juice depicting his body and his blood given over for us in death. It expresses our need that we can't save ourselves. As Paul said in Galatians 2, that if we could save ourselves, then the the cross was was vain. It was pointless. I make the grace of God pointless and to no effect if I think that I can save myself. The very death of Christ says that you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself right before God and in his courtroom, in his judgment by your good works, by your obedience, because your obedience is stained with sin and it's characterized by utter imperfection through and through. We need the very obedience of Christ leading to his death on the cross to substitute for our lack of obedience and our utter disobedience. And the Lord's Supper tells us that every single week. It says your relationship with God is defined from beginning to last on grace. You don't contribute anything to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We are utterly dependent on God's grace. And so as we practice the Lord's Supper this morning, let that be an encouragement to your own soul. It's a very, it's a very, it seems like a very weird thing, right? As Christians, we want to be encouraged by reminded how desperate we are. But Christians are a weird people and the gospel is a counterintuitive reality in that way. Let the gospel, though, remind you of how desperate you are so that we can be shaped more and more as a people who reflexively pray out of a gospel-sourced sense of dependence on him.